you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 7, the Old Testament book of Joshua. And uh, if you're using one of the hardback Bibles in the rack in front of you, it's page 189. When we gather for worship on Sunday, our purpose, our goal, our aim always is to bring honor and glory to God. You know that. We call it a worship service for a reason. Uh, But today is one of those special days. And while we seek to do this every Sunday on the Lord's Supper Day, this is our laser-focused purpose to do nothing today but bring honor and glory to God. What a great day. I hope you look forward to these Lord's Supper days. Today we're not going to talk about uh, how to have a better marriage, how to raise godly children, how to manage money, how to turn peace, I'm sorry, stress to peace. Though the Bible speaks about all of those things, today we will focus solely on honoring the Lord. And you know, there are many ways we do that. Uh, We do it through the songs that we sing. As we stand and just proclaim these praises to the Lord, we are honoring Him. Uh, We do it through the prayers that we pray. Uh, In every service, we pause and pray, and that's for the purpose of honoring the Lord. We do it through the offerings that we give. And even if you don't give on Sunday, many of us give electronically or through the week. Uh, When we pause in our offering time and we have a heart that gives, uh, we are honoring the Lord. And we honor the Lord through his word. When we read and we preach and we explain and we respond to God's word, we honor the Lord. In fact, I think that is the centerpiece of our worship. Paul, when he was instructing Timothy uh, how to conduct the church, he said, give special attention to the public reading, the exhortation, and the teaching of God's word. And so when we preach and teach God's word, we honor the Lord. Uh, You may not know, but our worship in a church like this, in any non-liturgical church, that's a church like ours, Our worship is modeled on something we read in Nehemiah chapter eight. Uh, Now, don't don't turn there. I just want to reference a couple of things that uh, that we read in Nehemiah chapter eight because it is the model for our worship. And I love to preach on Nehemiah eight. Haven't had the opportunity since I've been your pastor, uh, but I'm sure if the Lord tarries, we will get there. It is a great chapter. Uh, So let me just read to you a couple of the verses right in the middle of this worship service that they have that really becomes the foundation for worship services that would happen for now the next 3,000 years. In Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 5, it says, Ezra opened the book in full view of all of the people since he was elevated above everyone. And so we already see some things that are common to our way of worship. We we have a platform. Uh, We have somebody to stand up here with the book. Now, Nehemiah would have had a scroll, not a book, and so he didn't really open it. He unrolled it. But it says, when he opened the book, as he opened it, all the people stood to their feet. And so they did that to bring reverence, to honor the reading of God's word. Nehemiah 8.8 then says, he read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. And so Nehemiah would read and he would explain. And he would read and he would give commentary. And the people received with reverence 
the Word of God. Now, we started a practice at the beginning of the year uh, that I don't think I really ever took the time to explain, and, and that's my mistake. And more than one person in the last couple of weeks has asked questions about this, and so I thought this would be as good a time as any uh, to give some explanation. And it fits right in here with Nehemiah chapter 8, and it really fits into the purpose of this service, just to bring honor and reverence to God and to his word. So one of the reasons, and there are more reasons this morning than, than we have time for, but one of the reasons why we often, uh, not every time, but we often stand when we read God's word in our service uh, is this. If you go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 8, you discover that the reason that chapter is needed, the reason they needed the revival that really culminated in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that the nation of Israel, the people of God, had abandoned God. For generations now, they had abandoned God. And as a result of that, God's judgment had come upon the nation. God allowed the nation of Israel to be overthrown by an, by an enemy nation, a pagan nation. Many of the people in Israel were exiled. We learned something about that when we studied the life of Daniel at the beginning of the year. And so for decades, God's judgment was upon them. And why? Well, they had some kings make poor decisions. They had some evil and some wicked leaders, and they suffered as a result of that. But primarily, the reason why they, they, they grew so far away from God is because they failed to honor and value God's word. And little bit at a time, God's word became less and less important until eventually it was not a part of their lives and they fell away from God. And so what was the solution to that? Well, in, in Nehemiah's mind, uh, and the apex of this revival that brought them back to God was to hold up God's word and to call people to have a special reverence for God's word. Now, in the 3,000 years since Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, the people of God have continued to, uh, to grow close to God and to fall away from God and to grow close to God and to fall away from God. And every time, the reason that they have fallen away from God has been the same. They devalued God's word. Uh, a year or so ago, we looked at the Reformation. Do you remember that? And uh, we learned that uh, in the 15th century, Christianity didn't even resemble what we see in the Bible. It was so foreign in many ways from biblical Christianity, it was hardly recognizable. And what was the reason for that? We, we talked about what, 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 what took those people so far away from God? Well, the word of God lost its place in the church. They began to devalue God's word. They began to ignore God's word. God's word was not readily available to the people. And over time, they drifted from God's word. And so when the reformers came along and God brought revival to the church, what was the centerpiece of that revival? It was God's word. The reformers came along and said, sola scriptura, we've got to go back to God's word. And God's word really became the catalyst to bring them back. And you can look over the 3,000 years between Nehemiah and today, and you see that same pattern over and over and over. So what about today? Well, I hate to report to you, but today the Christian church is in decline. It's not just in decline numerically, that's bad enough, but 
It is in decline in its faithfulness. Every day, churches are abandoning historical Christianity. Do you know that? Whole denominations of churches are turning their backs on, on what people have always believed to be Christianity, what the first church practiced and what the Bible teaches. The, the, uh, the abominations that happen in churches today, the things that churches do and call worship is, is, is terrible in many cases. So what is causing those churches to be in such free fall from, from the traditional historic understanding of what it means to be a Christian? Well, without exception, if you study those churches, you notice that it's because they have devalued God's word. And what will be the solution to that? What will keep a few churches faithful and honoring God? It'll be because a few churches maintain their value and respect for God's word. Now, God's word has always been the centerpiece of our church, and I'm thankful for that heritage. But God's word has been the centerpiece and the foundation of many churches today that are now abandoning God's word. I want us to be the church that stands faithful through the generations. I want us to be the church that stands faithful all the way to the end. I want us to be the church that doesn't abandon God's word. And so one of the things that we've done is uh, since January, and I don't know how long we'll do this, but for a season anyway, but since January, we've been taking in many or most of our worship services, uh, a small portion of scripture, and we just stand to give special meaning, just to have a Nehemiah chapter eight moment, to give some dramatic affirmation to the fact that this isn't just some book that we can take or leave, but this is the very word of God. Now, is, is this the only thing we can do? And the answer is no. It, it is not even the best thing for us to do. There are many things we need to do to safeguard God's word at First Baptist of Nacogdoches. But it is one thing we can do, right? It is a biblical thing that we can do it is a traditional thing. Over the last 200 years, many of the churches, maybe even most of the churches that have been most significant in their faithfulness have been churches that have done this. And I believe in a culture where churches left and right, even in our own community, are abandoning God. This is one thing we can do to put a marker in the sand and say at our church, in our lives, we will stand upon the truth and the inerrancy of God's word. I think this is one way we can communicate to our children and to the people of the next generation that we are a church that stands upon the word of God. And so uh, we've come here today to honor God through singing, through praying, through giving, uh, through reading the Bible and preaching, and also today uh, through the Lord's Supper. And I am uh, greatly anticipating that. I love Lord's Supper days. Well, to begin our message time, I want us to look at one verse that's not in Joshua chapter 7. So keep your Bible open to Joshua 7, page 189. But I, I, I want to I show you another verse. And I'm just going to show it to you on the screen and then we'll get right back into Joshua chapter 7. But I want you to see this verse because this is, I think, the most important verse in the Bible 
And it's the verse that's going to take us through this message, even though we'll be focused in another place. So let me ask you, if you will, to stand just in honor of God's word, the truthfulness of God's word, and let me read to you as we focus on Romans 6, 23. The Bible says, for the wages, that means what we deserve, the wages of sin is, what's the word? Death. Death. But the gift, that means that which we do not deserve, the gift of God is? eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Please be seated. So why is this verse so valuable? This verse tells us uh, the consequences of sin. This verse tells us why it is that people die. But this verse gives us the hope of eternal life. And I think to really understand this verse, We have to see it illustrated. And we're going to come back to this verse at the conclusion of the message. But but let me now illustrate this verse with with an historical event in Joshua chapter 7. So your Bibles are open to Joshua 7. Let me give you a little bit of background. The people of God are in the process early in Joshua of going into the promised land. So this is a land that God had promised to them. Uh, They had an opportunity to go into this land some 40 years prior, uh, but because of their disobedience, because they didn't honor God's word, uh, God sent them to the desert. And they've been waiting now for a generation or two. But God has given them a second opportunity to go into the promised land, and they are on their way. The first obstacle they faced when they went into the promised land was a city named Jericho. And you may know the story of Jericho. It was a great obstacle. It was a walled city. It was a fortified place. And they didn't know how they were going to defeat it. They were just a bunch of nomads. How are they going to defeat this military outpost of Jericho? But if you know the story, you know that God gave them victory that God tore down the walls of Jericho, that God gave them complete victory over the people and they ran through and they celebrated and it was a miracle of God. It was one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament. They had defeated Jericho. Well, then the next city uh, on their path into the promised land was a city called Ai. It's spelled Ai. Can you remember that? And so they come across Ai, and it's a small city. There are no walls. It's, it has no fortification. And, and so this one wasn't going to be a trouble at all. And so Joshua and his leaders decided that instead of going through everything they went through with Jericho, that they would just send 3,000 soldiers to just easily wipe out and mop up the city of Ai. But you know what happened? They got there, and they were defeated. In fact, the people of Ai ran them out of town all the way back to their camp. 36 Israel soldiers were killed in the skirmish and the rest of the 3,000 soldiers come back in defeat. And Joshua, the leader, is beside himself. And so we pick up with the story right there in Joshua chapter 6. Now, I want to read the story. Our goal is just to get to the end because it's going to be a a beautiful illustration, I believe, of what we've read in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. 
The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But as we read through this, I want to show you some some, uh, principles that we can learn as we go through this. So we're in Joshua chapter uh, 7, look at verse 6. So the soldiers arrive back. I just want to make sure you understand where we are. And they've been defeated. Some of them have been killed. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. Uh, well, let's look on to verse 7. Oh, Lord, Joshua said. So now he's praying. Why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. So the first little lesson we learn here is that praying after the fact is not the same as praying before the fact. Do you see a problem here? They've been defeated. Now what does Joshua do? Joshua prays. What should Joshua have done? Joshua should have prayed before they went into the battle. Joshua prayed before they went into Jericho, but there's no record of Joshua praying before they went into Ai. Joshua prays after the fact that's too late. Now, the reason I I mention this is because I think this is a common practice. I think for many of us, we just rush into situations and when they fall apart, then we pray, oh God, what are you doing? How you've left me here, you've abandoned me. But what we should have done was not pray after the fact, we should have prayed uh, before. Uh, Well, let's skip down to verse 10 as we continue to follow this story. Uh, Joshua continued to pray. And then verse 10, God's going to speak. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Essentially, the Lord says, quit praying. You don't find this very often in scripture when God says, stop praying. But that's what happened here. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sins and they have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. Now, here's here's a lesson we learn. Prayer is no substitute for obedience. Uh, God tells them here that they had, they had sinned. The, the people of Israel had sinned. There was terrible sin in the camp. And instead of dealing with the sin, Joshua is praying for deliverance. Now, we should pray for deliverance. But let's not think that prayer or singing or worship or anything else makes up for sin. You can't sin on one hand and then just cover it up with enough, with enough spiritual stuff that it makes the sin go away. And here, the nation of Israel had sinned. Joshua was praying, God, give us another chance. God said, no, first, you need to stop the sinning. First, you have to deal with the sin. So we continue to read verse 12. It says, this is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. Well, here we see that the consequences of sin affect many. So we're going to see later in the story that it was one man who had sinned. It was one man, Achan is his name, and he he was guilty of sin. 
And now because he's guilty of sin, the whole nation of Israel is impacted. Now, what do we learn about that? We learn that sin doesn't just affect you. Too often we think my sin affects me and me only. It affects my future, my peace, my walk with God. It, it affects me, but it doesn't affect the people around me. But the truth is it does affect the people around you. It, it, it affects your, your family. It affects your friends and your neighbors. It affects our church. I looked back this week to see when, when was the last time I had preached from Joshua chapter 7. And I was reminded, it was several, several years ago. But I was reminded when I looked at the message what the what the events were that led up to that. And I was pastoring in a church and I had, I had discovered uh, in the few days before that Sunday uh, that in the leadership of our church that there was some sin, some, some ongoing sin. Not, not that all of us don't sin and confess and seek forgiveness and repentance, but there was this there was an ongoing pattern of sin in some of the leadership of our church. And I preached this message. It was, I guess, one of the only, or maybe one of only two messages I've ever preached out of anger. It was uh, one of those turn the money changers tables over kind of messages. Um, I remember it. I bet they remembered it. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was some kind of Sunday. But uh, the, the, the message there to that group of people. And the message really to all of us is that we have to know that when one person sins, many people uh, experience the consequences. And that was the, that was the case here. Well, let's continue to read as we come to verse 13. Bible says, go and consecrate the people, tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow uh, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there are things that are set apart among you, Israel, and you will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. And so what God tells Joshua to do is it's time to stop tolerating sin. The next principle we learn this is this, we share in guilt as long as we tolerate sin. Do you know there are four categories of sin? Uh, there's sin of commission. You know what that is? That's when you do something you know you ought not do. I mean, most of us know about the sin of commission. But then there's the sin of omission. When you fail to do something you ought to do. You know the third kind of sin? The sin of influence. When your life influences someone else to sin. That's sin. But what's the fourth kind of sin? The fourth kind of sin is the sin of tolerance. When you tolerate the sins of others, then eventually that becomes your sin. And here in verse 13, God tells Joshua, uh, it's time to draw a line in the sand and say, in your congregation, in your nation, in your family, you will no longer tolerate that sin. Well then, skip down to verse 16. Joshua got up early the next morning he had Israel come forward tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was selected and he had the clans of Judah come forward uh, and, and the Zeharite clan was selected and he had the Zeharite clan come forward by the heads of the families and Zebedi was selected and then he had Zebedi's family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zebedi, son of Zerai, uh, the tribe of Judah was selected. Now what is this? 
Well, God is pointing out who's guilty of sin. Now, God had two options to do this. God could have said to Joshua, it's that man. And God could have pointed, God could have identified Achan as the one who is guilty of the sin. But God didn't do that. First, God gets the, uh, God tells Joshua to get the leaders of all the people together. And then he, you know, so got all these, got the 12 leaders and, and all their representatives. And uh, then God says, it's one of this man's family. And then you get all of, of the, of, uh, in that tribe, you get all of those heads together and, and it's this man's family. And so they, they're narrowing it down a little bit by a little bit. This would have taken hours, most likely. We're talking about moving around thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. The whole time, what do you think Achan is thinking? They're getting closer and closer. So why did God put Achan through that? That it took hours before the finger was on Achan. Why didn't God just point him out to start with? Well, I think that brings us to our next principle. Confession should be embraced while opportunity remains. I think God was giving Achan plenty of opportunity to confess his sins. And you know, some of us, God has given, the reason God hasn't just put his finger down in your life on your sins is because God has given you more and more opportunity to confess. I mean, God, God will deal with your sins, but I mean, you, if you're a parent, you know how this works, right? It's a whole lot better for your kids to come confess to you than it is for you to go and catch them. And sometimes as parents, we give our kids a little, a little opportunity to repent, right? We give them a little time to see if they'll repent. I think sometimes God gives us a little time. I think he gave Achan a little time. I think sometimes he gives me and you. Some of us right now, God's just holding back because he's giving you time to repent. That's how gracious and merciful God is. Uh, but that time will not uh, go on indefinitely. Well, let's look down to verse, um, to verse 21. It's getting more and more serious as we go. Uh, well, we should read verse, verse 20. Achan has been identified, and so he replies. Verse 20, Achan replied to Joshua, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. And then he goes and he, he explains his sin. He said, when I saw... Uh, by the way, in, when they went through Jericho, God had told them not to take any stuff. You're to destroy the city of Jericho, but leave all of the stuff there. Well, Achan had picked up a few things he thought were valuable. And that was the, that was the sin. But, but look, look, listen to how he describes it in verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and I took them. Now you see three things. He saw them, so he let his eyes wander. So he didn't just see them, right? I mean, he's going through the ashes of Jericho, kicking things around until he saw them. So he's looking for sin. And then he coveted it, the Bible says. That means he began to think about, well, if I had that bar of gold, just think what I could do. Boy, that would be nice. I could take a vacation. I could do this or that. So he coveted it, and then he took it. I just want you to notice, and that's the next uh, principle, sin is a progression. So it starts small, starts with you just looking for it, and then it gets bigger. We need to be careful. i got to move on. Uh, also, what we see here is that sin is sin even if you can justify it. That's the next, um, that's the next principle. I'm, I'm sure Achan had a pretty good reason 
Maybe he thought, you know, God has put me here and God put that gold bar here. I mean, it can't be a coincidence, right? God wants me to take that gold bar. Or maybe he thought, I'm risking my life for the Lord. At least I ought to get as a gold bar. Or maybe he thought, you know, I'm going to take that gold bar now and I'm going to do something good with it later. Or maybe he just thought, doesn't God want me to be happy? So, but listen, sin, sin, even if you can justify it. I bet Achan had 10 good reasons to take that gold bar, but they were all wrong. Now, let's wrap up the story. Verse 24, then Joshua and all all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, his sons and his daughters, his donkey and his sheep, his tent, and all that he had and brought them up to the valley of Achor. Now, it's going to be disturbing what you read next, but it's important. Joshua said, why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. And they buried their bodies and threw stones on them. Now there's some debate about whether it was just Achan who was stoned or it was Achan and his family. And we could go through the Hebrew there. There's some ambiguity there. We know this, that no innocent person was stoned to death. But the point of it is this, that the result of Achan's sin is that he was killed. Principle H in your outline, God hates sin. God hates sin. Seems awfully harsh, doesn't it? The death penalty for something that I'm sure all of us have done at some point in life. Where we have violated some principle or command of God because we thought it wouldn't matter and nobody was going to get hurt and we had three good reasons anyway. And for that sin, Achan was stoned to death. Because, listen, God hates sin. Now let's go back to Romans 6.23 and let me just wrap this up. The wages of sin is death. The result, what you deserve and what I deserve, if we have ever sinned is death. The bad news is that's all the Israelites knew. They just had the first half of Romans 6.23. And it's right there in Joshua 7 and a hundred other places in the Bible. When you sin, you die. When you sin, you die. Sin deserves death. And in a moment, as we take the Lord's Supper and we think about Jesus dying on the cross, not because of his sins, but because of ours, we are reminded that the wages of sin is death. We're reminded that, that there is no forgiveness, no remission of sin apart from the shedding of blood. The wages of sin is death. You and me, we deserve death. Death. No way to overcome that. You can live a pretty good life from here on out, but you're still guilty of sin in the past, right? You can live a perfect life from here on out, but the truth is you're an Achan. I'm an Achan, and we deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But here's the part that we know today that Joshua didn't understand in his day. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That ought to amaze us. When we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, 
and we think of the body that was slain and we think of the blood that was shed, what we remember is that Jesus died for us. That Jesus died for me. And we celebrate that most incredible gift and symbol of love uh, that there has ever been. Let me ask you, if you will, to bow your head and to close your eyes for a moment. And I want to extend an invitation in just two or three ways. Number one, as we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you cannot celebrate it. Now, you may eat some bread and drink some juice, but you cannot celebrate it. It will not be a legitimate celebration unless you're a child of God. Unless there's been a specific time in your life when you've understood the wages of sin is death and your only hope was to trust what Jesus has done and surrender to him. You can't celebrate the Lord's Supper unless you've been reborn. We're going to stand and sing in a moment. I'm going to invite you. If you've never been reborn, don't be embarrassed. This is the most wonderful thing in the world. You come down. One of our ministers here at the front, or I'll be here at the front, would love to share with you today how you can become a child of God. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Some of you, many of us, we know that we're saved. But we also know that we have been we have been cavalier about our sin. We, 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 have, we have forgotten, if you will, that the wages of sin is death. And though they are covered by the sacrifice of Christ, we know that we're sinning without confession. Would you be repentant this morning? And whether you come and pray at this altar or you stand and sing, would you pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Help me to change in the power of Christ. Because I know that the wages of sin is death. Father, uh, as people respond, as we sing, Father, as even people come forward to join the church this morning, May our focus be on you and may we hear so clearly the message of the Holy Spirit that Jesus loves us, but he hates sin and he's ready to forgive sin if we're ready to confess. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we worship and respond.